Hello, and welcome to Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News. We are a graduate student-led organization at Harvard University focused on generating discussions between scientists, other experts, and enthusiasts. Today, I'm talking with other graduate students about the 2020 Nobel Chemistry Prize. I'm Melissa Kant. I'm a graduate student in physics at MIT. Hi, everyone. Hi, I'm Wei. I'm a graduate student in chemistry at Harvard. I'm Edward, and I'm a graduate student in immunology at Harvard. Hey, I'm Chad, and I'm a student in the biological and biomedical sciences at Harvard. Hi, I'm Jordan. I'm a graduate student in the biological sciences and public health at Harvard. Hi everyone, I'm Delphine. I'm a graduate student in the systems biology program at Harvard. in October, arguably the most exciting event in science takes place. I have to admit, I'm generally filled with anticipation and I have a few sleepless nights over this. It's sort of like the Oscars of the sciences. Of course, I'm talking about the Nobel Prize. And sometimes my friends and I even have bets on who we think is going to get it this year. Uh, but it's always quite hard since most of the time they're not awarded to a recent discovery. Uh, do you guys do you guys do bets as well? I know I know there are different websites even that do bets for the Nobel Prize. I haven't, <laughs> but I might, I might now actually. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to see who people are thinking about. I've never gotten it right. So for our listeners who might not be completely familiar with the Nobel Prize, but I'm sure almost everyone has heard about them, it's probably the most distinguished prize you can receive in the sciences. It's awarded by the four Nobel Prize awarding institutions, and it's not a single prize. The categories are physiology or medicine, physics, chemistry, literature, peace, and the economic sciences. The science prizes are always awarded to people, not institutions, which has caused some problems as well. Uh, and it's given to a, a maximum of three recipients. So who are some of your favorite Nobel laureates, everyone? So one of my favorite Nobel laureates, um, I don't have a person that I like, but more of a technology. So there was a Nobel Prize in chemistry that was awarded some time ago for Suzuki coupling. So it's a kind of chemistry, chemical reaction that, between, that you can easily couple two different molecules together. Um, and it's very widely used in medicinal chemistry. So I did like an internship in a pharmaceutical company and that's basically what they do all day. They just do Suzuki coupling a thousand times a day to make a thousand molecules a day. <laughs> so it's honestly one of the most uh, convenient reaction ever. And so because of that, I, I think this is one of my favorite Nobel Prize technology that has been won. I wouldn't necessarily say that I have a favorite, but I think that many Nobel Prizes have had interesting histories behind them about the humans behind them. And one of them in particular is like the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for 2008, which was awarded to three researchers for the discovery and development of green fluorescent protein. And actually the scientist who first cloned the green fluorescent protein gene 
dropped out of academia and he did not get the Nobel Prize. His name is Douglas Crasher. And there are some people who, it's, an, it's always an interesting thought question to just think like, if he had stayed in science, if things had went better for him, would he have gotten a Nobel? And in fact, he ended up driving courtesy vans at a Toyota dealership. So that's just really interesting. GFP is from jellyfish, right? They, they found it from the rings of the jellyfish. Yes, it is yeah. from jellyfish. Are there any lawsuits that came out from that? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, the scientist who cloned JFP, he had very good relations, I would want to say, with two of the Nobel laureates because he sent his sample to them and he sent sample to many other scientists. And he later worked in the field, in the, in the lab of Roger Chen, who was one of the laureates. So I'll say that they got along pretty well. So like Edward, I picked a favorite based on sort of personal story rather than strictly the science. Um, so my favorite laureate is Jacques Monod, who won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine back in 1965. And he was really critical along with his co-recipients for helping us to understand really fundamental biology about the genetic code, which um, contributes to all forms of life on earth. Um, and the reason that I picked him is because not only was he a very influential scientist, um, but he was also very involved in the uh, French resistance to Nazi Germany in World War II. And he was good friends with um, one of my favorite authors, Albert Camus, um, who was also a Nobel laureate and involved in the, uh, the resistance. So he seems like an interesting, he was an interesting character and uh, did a lot of good science. I would say my favorite team of Nobel winners would be the team of Blackburn, Greater, and Stozak. Um, and what they discovered was the enzyme telomerase and that telomeres protect chromosomes. And I remember in, so this was awarded in 2009. I remember around that time doing a really deep dive into learning about telomeres and telomerase and um, it was one of the first times that I really got into um, science. So yeah, that's definitely a memory for me. Were you interested in understanding aging? Because that's the first time I heard about them. Yep, it was aging and stem cells. <laughs> I'd say for me, my my favorite Nobel laureate was always Eric Kendall. He's this, um, this crazy old guy that wears bow ties, um, who actually, he got the Nobel Prize in 2000 for the hypothesis that memories are actually stored at the synapse and I had the chance to actually work in his lab for two summers when I was an undergrad and he's just as crazy <laughs> as what you read about him um but it's interesting because his life story is he was born in Vienna in 1929 and his family actually fled the Nazis and came to New York and he actually did his undergrad at Harvard and now is at Columbia but it's just a really fascinating story that um that he's still alive and that he's still doing good science and that he's, uh, he's like a little piece of neuroscience history. My favorite Nobel laureate is for sure Marie Curie, but that's a very generic answer, right? You know, she, she is incredible in so many ways, but she's also the only person and still the only person who has received two Nobel prizes in two different science fields. That's just amazing. Uh, but my favorite story is um, one with uh, Penzias and Wilson. They were working in Bell Labs and there was a radio antenna that was built for radio communication with satellites. 
but they wanted to use it to study the microwave uh, background radiation. And they set up the experiment and uh, they heard the noise because it's this, this noise that you can hear. And it was so powerful, they thought, oh, it must be a mistake, it must be New York City. This was in New Jersey, so, oh, it must be New York City, it must be something else. And they found two pigeons, I believe, uh, that had made a nest in the uh, sort of the enclosure of the antenna. And so they set up a trap and they trapped the birds and that trap is actually on display in a museum. And afterwards they were like, great, uh, it must've been the bird droppings. We're gonna figure it out now. And they heard the same noise and that's how we uh, learned about the cosmic background radiation and no one was expecting it. Um, so bird droppings, uh, either bird droppings or the cosmic background radiation. So, so we talk about these people and these stories as if they're, you know, like celebrities, right? So why is the Nobel Prize so prestigious? So it was first started in 1901. At the time, there were only a handful of prizes awarded to scientists. Also, the, these Nobel Prizes were very general in scope and they were awarded internationally. And so they also received worldwide interest. And of course, they also gave the largest monetary prize back in the day that also helped. And the prize is still pretty lucrative today. For example, this year's laureates were awarded $1.1 million in each category. Uh, and more recently, other highly prestigious prizes have also popped up. Uh, for example, the Kavli and also the Breakthrough Prizes. But Nobel has really remained in the lead in how it has been regarded by both the scientific community and also the general public as well. So where did all the money come from? $1.1 million is quite, quite a lot. Yeah, so the... Uh, namesake and, and the funder and, and the founder of uh, the Nobel Prizes was Alfred Nobel. So he was a Swedish chemist and engineer who lived in the 1800s. He's mostly known for inventing dynamites and he made quite a fortune from this invention. So if he were alive today, his net worth would be $250 million. And in 1888, something really odd happened his brother died, but a few newspapers erroneously published his obituary. So he read these and a French newspaper had the title, The Merchant of Death is Dead. And allegedly he was so upset with this portrayal that he decided to leave you know, all his money and, and found the, the Nobel Prize Fund uh, to leave a more positive legacy behind. And this, the this is actually still what funds the, the prizes today. So it's a very sort of coincidental and, and very interesting uh, event. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I can't help but wonder if, if all of science is somehow funded by wealthy uh, <laughs> investors that realize that they are awful people and want it to live behind a legacy. Because there's the Howard Hughes Foundation, which is a perfect example. And there's the Koch Foundation also. There's like so many 
I guess there's also the Gates, which is, you know, more philanthropic, but I feel like it's, uh, it's so ingrained into science that there's these rich investors that are going to carry us along and provide funding. It's just interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I do have to say, I like that some of these prizes really make scientists celebrities because that really, I think, has a lot of people look up to them and want to be them. But I wish that it wasn't just up to, uh, you know, rich donors who wanted to leave a certain legacy behind to have these kinds of events. And, and I wish there were more ways that scientists would become celebrities in their own right, right? Without these, uh, without the Nobel Prize. There are so many scientists who deserve a Nobel Prize who don't get it. And actually, uh, Nobel Prize Committee has been, uh, has, has gone through a lot of controversies themselves as well. So traditionally, they've been very Western-centric. They have given prizes mostly to white men. And the gender gap especially has been quite large. Out of 930 individuals who have received the Nobel Prize, only 57 have been women. 57 out of 930, especially in the sciences, that 57 number is about halved. And you know, some people might say that this is due to a lack of women in prestigious positions who could do this kind of groundbreaking research that the committee is looking for, but there are countless instances of women who have been overlooked. Uh, for example, Jocelyn Bell, who discovered a kind of star called a pulsar, so it's called a pulsar because as it rotates, you see the pulses of light. And uh, she was not awarded the 1974 Nobel Physics Prize in, uh, for its discovery. Instead, it was her advisor, Anthony Hewish, and another researcher, Martin uh, Ryle, who received it. And there are countless others like Lisa Meitner, Cecilia Payne, Henrietta Swan-Levitt, and this is how dude walls happen. Do you guys know about dude walls? Do you know what dude walls are? No, I don't. Yeah, so this is sort of a fun story that involves Rachel Maddow, the TV personality. Apparently she went to give a uh, prize to a woman scientist. And when she entered the auditorium, she saw this, these paintings of, of men all men <laughs> uh, who were, you know, very important, revered scientists. And apparently she said, what's up with the dude wall? And that's how this was, this term was coined. And since then, a lot of universities have actually tried to see if they could present these paintings sort of in a different way, if they could add um, more diverse people to these walls, <laughs> to not just have it be a dude wall. And I think it's important because when people see themselves in these walls, then they are also encouraged to do the kind of work that they're doing. Um, so that's why I was so excited uh, when I heard that the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna for the development of a method for genome editing. So Charpentier and Doudna make up the first 
ever all-women team to receive a Nobel Science Prize in its history of over a century. This is really a historic moment, of course, scientifically, but also for women scientists who largely work in a male-dominated field. When you were talking about how representation matters, I really think that that is true, and especially with this prize. Um, a quote that stuck out to me in an interview with Professor Doudna, she said, it's great for especially younger women to see this and see that women's work can be recognized as much as men's. I think for many women, there's a feeling that no matter what they do, their work will never be recognized as it might be if they were a man. And I'd like to see that change, of course. And I think that this is a step in the right direction. And when I read that, I realized like I am a graduate student at a very elite university and I've grown up thinking like, if I could be president, like I could be president if I want to, or I could be an astronaut if I want to, but I never saw myself being a Nobel prize winner um, until I read that quote. And I realized that it was an almost like an artificial boundary that existed in my mind because of these, you know, dude walls of only seeing white men kind of take these places in society. So what did they win it for? What was the Nobel prize in? Great, let's delve into the science. Uh, so what did Charpentier and Doudna do? They developed CRISPR-Cas9. So that's C-R-I-S-P-R, CRISPR-Cas9. So this is a tool for targeted and precise gene editing. Though only developed seven years ago, it has changed the landscape of biological research. The Sit and Listen podcast has a previous episode covering how this technique works and how it can be applied in detail, but we would like to give you a little refresher on it and talk about how it was developed. For technical details, we highly encourage you to listen to the previous CRISPR episode. The story of CRISPR begins by the beautiful blue Mediterranean Sea. Francisco Mojica, a graduate student, in the University of Alicante was studying a salt resistant bacteria when he discovered a peculiar DNA sequence. Multiple repeats of a particular palindromic sequence separated by short but different sequences. He saw these in different related bacterial species and some more distant bacteria as well. He also realized that in the 80s, a Japanese group had found a similar structure in E. coli, those bacteria that live in our guts. He called these structures clustered, regularly interspaced palindromic repeats, or CRISPR. The question of what these were and what they did evaded scientists for some time. That is up until the technology was able to catch up. Do you all know what BLAST is? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I think for scientists that do any type of like nucleotide or amino acid work, we're all super familiar with BLAST because it pretty much just lets you take a known sequence and search it across a database of all known nucleotides or proteins and based on alignment, determine homology. That's exactly right. And you said it like it was the most common tool, right? In, and that it is currently an incredibly common tool. But uh, it actually isn't so old. So when um, Mojica was doing these, these experiments, he actually would go on blast and not be able to find any matches. But 
one day he decided to try it again because it was a growing database and it was sort of, there were more, you know, sequences being added. And so when he searched these CRISPR sequences from E. coli, he found that it matched a virus that specifically infected these bacteria. But this strain of E. coli was known to be resistant to this kind of virus. He tried this on other CRISPR sequences and many came up with matching uh, a viral DNA. It was then that Moika realized that this must be a part of the immune system of bacteria to help them in fighting viruses. What's crazy is that listening to this, you're probably thinking, what a momentous time, what an incredible discovery that changed the course of scientific progress. Just, you know, just incredible, right? And at the time when he saw this, it must have been this eureka moment, huge paper, just recognition all around. But that's not what happened. He actually found it incredibly difficult to even publish the results. He sent it to a number of journals and one of them rejected it because it did not have sufficient novelty or importance. Isn't that crazy? This is, this is so weird looking back and, and hearing this. Uh, and eventually it was published a year and a half later. And a discovery so important was published a year and a half la later after multiple journals rejecting it. So after this came a long list of people with incredible and critical accomplishments leading to the understanding of not only if this was an adaptive immune system for bacteria, but also how it worked. Naming everyone would make an entire episode or more, uh, but some notable and coincidental or um, serendipitous events involved a French group changing research topics to focus on studying bacteria that could be used as biological weapons due to a fear that Saddam Hussein's regime could develop and use them. This group argued that CRISPRs may represent a memory of past viral encounters, an incredibly important step in understanding this. Another interesting story involves a graduate student who studied sauerkraut. Uh, and he later went on to work in the molecular biology lab of a company that made cultures for dairy products like you know, yogurt and cheese. He heard about CRISPR at a conference and began to use it to genotype the bacteria that he was working on. And he realized that there was a strong correlation between the sequences and resistance to certain viral strains. He studied a strain that was not resistant to a virus. And after having the bacteria and the viruses interact, he isolated those bacteria that had developed the resistance and saw that instead of more traditional resistance, for example, you know, changes in the receptors of the cell surface so the viruses can't attach as easily, etc. Um, they found that they had acquired new sequences in their CRISPR regions. And this was the first time this adaptive immunity was seen in an experimental setting. And it came from a culture uh, making company. 
from a person who studied sauerkraut. Countless other scientists and groups and you know, universities and research centers and discoveries later, we have a clear idea of how CRISPR works. So in short, when viruses attack bacteria, most of the time, the bacteria just die. But in the rare instances that they survive, they take the DNA of the virus and add it to their CRISPR regions. Bacteria can make RNA from these DNA segments they've acquired. And when the virus attacks, these RNAs teaming up with an enzyme such as Cas9, they can go directly to the viral DNA and cut it. And this makes the virus completely ineffective. So the natural next question was, if we can change the sequence of these CRISPR regions, can we program the system to cut any DNA we would like? And this would start a revolution in genome editing. This is where our protagonists, uh, Charpentier and Dauna, fit into the story. Charpentier first identified the trans-activating CRISPR RNA or tracer RNA. Uh, this is a key component of the CRISPR machinery. Then working with Doudna, they isolated the various molecules that make up the CRISPR-Cas9 system, put them in a test tube, and directly demonstrated that it could be used to cut specific sites on the DNA. This finding started the cascade of applications that followed. Maybe most, most notably was Feng Zhang of MIT who showed that this could be used in eukaryotic cells, such as human and mouse cells. They also showed that it could be used on multiple genomic uh, sequences. This can be extended to applications in agriculture, to CRISPR babies. The opportunities seem endless. Are there any applications that you guys would like to mention? So I think it's really hard to overstate how it's really transformed basic research. Um, we basically turned CRISPR into a verb, much like Google. We can just say, oh, why don't you just go CRISPR that? Or I CRISPRed that gene the other day. And of course, there's more clinical aspects that are currently being explored. Um, I think in the United States, there's currently a clinical trial to use CRISPR to essentially cure, which is what's really amazing about this technology, um, sickle cell anemia and other simple monogenic disorders like that. Um, like Melise mentioned, it's potentially incredibly powerful for agricultural technology, um, essentially engineering plants and crops to be resistant to droughts or to be more sustainable or be able to grow in different regions. And of course, with that also comes um, the, the potential aspects to um, help alleviate the effects of climate change um, or fight back against them. And then getting into the maybe more ethically complicated um, realm, we all, of course, have CRISPR babies, which Melissa already mentioned. Um, basically, taking desirable or undesirable traits and editing them into or out of the genome of humans. And of course, this carries enormous ethical consequences and is something that I think we'll be dealing with for you know, decades to come. And, um, I think it's fortunate that Professor Gerpentier and Doudna are both very involved in this debate and are very um, thoughtful in the way that they hope to apply this technology to human genome engineering. Absolutely. I think the ethical concerns are going to be quite important. And I'm really glad that they're being so 
sort of open and, and active in that as well. Yeah, so you, as you can see, there are just many, many applications. I mean, countless number of applications uh, that could be on their way in the not so soon, you know, not so distant, sorry, future, quite soon. Uh, with many opportunities in not just academic research, but industry too. Uh, anyone who holds the patent for CRISPR will stand to earn a lot of money. And we're talking millions of dollars, maybe, maybe more. And this is where we start getting into the ugly underbelly of academic patent litigation. You see back in 2012, Charpentier and Doudna filed for a patent in the US for the CRISPR technique for gene editing. And shortly after, around six months after, Zheng also filed for a patent specifically for its use in editing mammalian genomes. This is probably the, where a lot of the lucrative applications uh, would be. So while the Berkeley team, so that's Charpentier and Doudna, Professor Doudna is in UC Berkeley, so we'll call them the Berkeley team. Uh, while they had filed first, the MIT team uh, got the patent approved in 2014, while the Berkeley team was still waiting. The reason this happened was due to the Broad Institute, this is the institute associated with MIT, uh, they paid extra to get the process expedited. This is something I didn't know about the US patent system that apparently you can just make it go faster if you pay a little bit more money. So, okay, so now we have to get into a bit of the technical details of the US patent system. The US used to have a first to invent system. So if multiple patents were filed or someone disputed the ownership of a patent, the US Patent and Trademark Office, so that's USPTO, would look into who deserved the patent based on who was the first to demonstrate its invention. In 2013, the USPTO moved to a first to file system. Since these patents were filed in 2012, the Berkeley team was able to file for patent interference. This forced the case to go to court. There, the USPTO patent judges would need to determine who the inventor was. Let's remember that the Berkeley team was seeking for the patent to the CRISPR technology and its use in gene editing in general. And the MIT team was only arguing for um, the eukaryote applications. So generally, a patent application needs to disclose the work to the extent that a person skilled in the area can reproduce it easily. The Broad team argued that since the Berkeley team did not demonstrate how it could be used in eukaryotic cells, that, would, that it would create an undue burden on a person trying to perform CRISPR on such a complex system. They argued that their patent application contained this information. They pointed to other gene editing techniques that work in prokaryotic systems, so, such as bacteria, but not in eukaryotes. Thus, they argued that one would not necessarily expect CRISPR to work on such systems either, though we know that it does, but they have shown that it does. 
this argument worked and was also upheld by the Court of Appeals in 2018. But in 2019, the USPTO took up another claim of patent interference by the Berkeley team. There are multiple pattern, patents involved in this case, by the way. So there are just like a lot of different components that seem to be awarded to one team or the other team, depending on what exactly they cover and uh, what they claim is theirs and the different applications. Uh, so these are sort of broad strokes of, of how things went. It's a full-time job for multiple lawyers, so uh, it's impossible to cover sort of everything. But this appeal, this court case, actually ended up with the court siding again, mostly with the Broad Institute. And recently, another hearing was held, actually this September in 2020, uh, which cited favorably with the Broad Institute for potentially lucrative applications in human cells. Um, but the same time, the Berkeley group was recognized for their claim to a critical tool, this guide RNA that they um, used. So in Europe, there have been another set of court cases as well, uh, but those have actually generally favored the Berkeley team. Uh, but Again, I think this is a pretty long story with just a lot of moving parts. And it seems like these cases honestly might go on for many more years with the court sort of, you know, going a little bit more detailed and a little bit more detailed and a little bit more detailed and sort of sectioning it off into two teams. So, yeah, this complicated story of who gets these patents and the recognition, you know, such as the Nobel Prize, the breakthrough prizes, the, you know, so many, so many of these prizes, any other kind of recognition that they get, and it being really distributed among so many groups, so many continents, even so many people really highlight how many different people and fields and institutions have been involved in this incredible scientific breakthrough. Now, I think a lot of the times we're given this impression that there are just these genius scientists who come up with certain ideas and they're just incredible and we give them a Nobel Prize and that's the end of the story, but that's not generally what happens. There are a lot of collaborations, and a lot of people find just small but key aspects that lead us from these salt-resistant bacteria in the Mediterranean all the way to being able to edit the genome of a human cell. It's amazing, actually. Like it's it's amazing, but also it's inspiring when you're when you're studying and you're just working. Like often, it feels like you're kind of working in your own. Uh, little box or it's like oh I'm going to make some small contribution to, to science and society but it's kind of it's a little mind-blowing but also very um, it really encourages me to be more aspirational in the sense of thinking about the future implications of my own work where you know no one really goes into science because they want to win a Nobel Prize um, <laughs> but it kind of gets you thinking like what what first step of a bigger story am I going to contribute to or whose work am I going to draw inspiration from and where is that going to take other people and it kind of really 
it shows how science is so interconnected and how it it builds and also like it's kind of webbed together where all of science and um, its discoveries are kind of really important to each other. I think another thing that's interesting about this is that um, it resulted from scientific thinking outside of um, its application to a specific field and more towards its application as a tool. So it was an observation of a biological phenomenon, but what made it um, really impactful for all of us now is that somebody asked, how can I use this and how can I use it and implement it in like a bunch of different systems, right? How can I engineer this? Um, which is, I think, maybe a little bit outside what a lot of us are doing, um, translating our discoveries into, you know, how they can be used for other scientists as well. I think, I think Jordan makes a really good point. And I also think it highlights how much creativity is involved in science. It's not just all memorizing facts and making, you know, little discoveries that seem minute at the time, but it's really applying critical thinking and thinking outside the box. And um, yeah, it's just more creative than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Absolutely. I think that's the most important thing. And that's why I think it's so important to also be talking to people who are not in your immediate field. Dauna and Charpentier made an incredible team and did this experiment. And of course, some other, other aspects as well. It wasn't just this experiment, but that really led to an incredible uh, invention and a demonstration of this invention. And had it not been for both of them, had it not been that they came together, it would have never happened. And so it's, I think, really important to learn from people who have different perspectives or have different expertise, fields of expertise, and to be able to get together and do a project together. You'll just be significantly more creative and powerful. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you everyone for discussing this incredible discovery and the 2020 Nobel Chemistry Prize. Bye.